more pothole than road. Um, and where pothole isn't really the right word, like elephant hole might be a better way to describe it. Especially after a big wet, things just can get uh, pretty sketchy. Um, that's a lot like today's sermon, actually, now, now that I think about it. Uh, where everywhere we look, everywhere we dart our eyes around, there is an opportunity for me to make a mess of things which will cause my small group of young adults to meme me. And so we're going to play a game today called Pothole Chicken. Uh, and we're going to see if we can thread the needle uh, without coming a cropper. So, so pray for Mojo, that's, that's what I'm saying. We uh, have a lot to cover today. If, if you uh, weren't here during the announcements, let me reiterate the content warning. We're looking at some very adult themes in the book of Proverbs today. Um, it's going to be discussing boy-girl morality. Um, and so if you uh, are here with your children and you don't think that they're ready for that kind of content, then um, please take the opportunity to take them to Sunday school or to head outside maybe and make use of our playground if you would like. Um, if you're still here, you have now opted in. Let's go. <laughs> um, this, this, quite, this is quite the intro, isn't it? Like, I could say anything now. You're all listening. Um, we're in the book of Proverbs as a church, and we've been following uh, many of the themes that kind of run horizontally through the book. Once you get to sort of chapter 10, um, the book of Proverbs changed. The book of Proverbs began uh, with a call to embrace wisdom. Um, and then from about chapter 10 onwards, it becomes a, a list of actual proverbs, small, contained sayings of wisdom, about a verse long each. And we've been spending the last couple of weeks running through some of those themes. Um, and today we're kind of circling back, um, because in the previous section, the call to wisdom section, um, Proverbs had a big theme, which we have at best skimmed over. But it is uh, a big theme. At least a whole chapter was devoted to it, as well as several smaller sections, um, this theme is, honestly, one of the most uh, heavily emphasized themes in the entire book. Um, it is the theme of how wisdom leads us away from sexual sin. Uh, the content is direct. It steps on the toes of several different cultural sore points in our day. Uh, it talks about su sensitive subjects. Um, and yet, uh, we believe here that the whole Bible is the Word of God, and that faithfully exploring God's Word and letting it set the agenda here means um, that we let Him speak to us about these things. It might not be the thing that in a uh, given free reign uh, I, I would choose to preach on, and yet this is part of God's Word. It is here to instruct us. And so our job this morning is to, is to be grown-ups and to go to work hearing what it is that our Father is saying to us and to cooperate with what He is building in us. And I believe that's, that's time well spent. That's not a compromise at all. Um, the teaching here that God has for us is eternally relevant. So why don't we um, begin today by reading one of, the, one of the larger sections on this theme. If you've got a Bible with you, you can turn to Proverbs chapter 7. We're going to read the entire chapter of Proverbs 7, which sits in this theme uh, and has a lot to say. Um, as we begin to read, you will notice that um, this passage, like most of the similar passages, is written in the voice of a father trying to raise his son in wisdom. That's the tone of voice that we're going to encounter. This is a father warning his son against the wrong kind of women and the perilous consequences of sexual sin. Um, so let's start by reading Proverbs 7, and then we can get into what it means. Beginning at verse 1. My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers, write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call insight your intimate friend. 
to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. For at the window of my house, I have looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, uh, a young man lacking sense. Now, the, the, I love that. That's quite hilarious. Let's assume that this is Solomon writing this. That's probably your best bet for the author. Um, and you can picture King Solomon in his palace doing the geriatric nosy neighbor, looking through the curtains at what the youths are doing in the street. I just, it's a fun mental image. And what has he noticed? He's noticed... Um, a young man, he's seen amongst the, the, the simple, he's perceived amongst the youths, a young man lacking sense. Why does this young man lack sense? Because he is passing along the street near her corner. He's taking the road to her house. In the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner, she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him, and with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. Um, the implication there is that she's got a big supply of meat lying around at home because she's been to temple today, um, that she's going to share this meat with him if he comes into her house, which is perhaps the most seductive part of all. So now I have come out to meet you, to, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh and aloes and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter. Or as a stag is caught fast until an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O oh sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths, for many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. And scene. Isn't that fun? Um, I'm sure you noticed, as I was reading, that this passage just walks into several of our cultural hot topics, um, where we're going to need to clear the way out of some blockages, before we're going to be able to get the best out of this part of God's Word, because those blockages, those, those cultural hot topics can become a distraction to us that stops us from hearing what God is saying to us in wisdom. Uh, the simple truth is that there is a dominant voice in our culture which has a message for both men and women. Um, that message, the way in which our culture speaks to women and the way in which our culture speaks to men, are both directly contradicted here in Proverbs 7. I feel like I should be tying my own noose already. This is the part where I'm going to get into the most trouble. But you probably felt it even as I was reading. Proverbs refers to a sexually immoral woman calling her an adulteress and a forbidden woman. What a negative label. 
Mike asked me what part of the passage we were going to share on social media this week as a sort of preview of the sermon today, and I suggested Proverbs 7, verses 4 and 5. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call inside your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. Now, I'm sure as I suggest that, you can all imagine it's safe to say that if we were to share that on social media, it would be somewhat controversial. There's, there's a little bit of a fire that would start. This passage portrays an adulteress as predatory, whilst not condemning the man with equal vigor. We probably felt that too. And in doing so, it clashes up against a popular ideology in our day, which would object to any woman being described in this fashion. Uh, there are those who would, who would read this passage and declare that this kind of talk is dangerous, unacceptable, and will enable abuse. Um, this view would object to this passage, naming her sin whilst being more patient with him, and as a result would rush to conclude that the people who wrote this were quite simply bigots, who think that women should have no rights whilst men can do whatever they want. You can imagine someone saying that this is an example of the dangers of the Bible, the way in which um, if the Bible is left unchecked to roam about society, will create an oppressive climate where women have no rights and we all have to live in The Handmaid's Tale. We've all heard it before. Uh, in our cultural moment, the simple truth is you can't speak about women like this without getting yourself into a whole lot of trouble. However, the reverse is not true. You can speak about men like that. Um, the same voice which speaks to women um, in this way, never, never to name their sin, never to call them to repentance, is the voice which speaks to men and tells them that their job in the world is to do more and to be better without ever giving them a positive portrayal of what healthy masculinity is. Um, if you don't believe me, I could pull out any number of examples. Um, my favorite, for example, is how this passage is basically just the song No Scrubs by TLC with the genders reversed. You all know what I mean. If you don't, let me read to you from the book of TLC. <laughs> Chapter 1, verse 3. No, I don't want no scrub. Scrub is a guy who can't get no love from me, hanging out the passenger side of his best friend's ride, trying to holler at me. Amen. <laughs> I mean, come on, that's basically just the passion translation of Proverbs 7, okay? <laughs> Pothole number one. Um, for those of you listening along today who are younger than the age of 30 and don't know what a scrub is, uh, a scrub is a guy who thinks he's fly and is also known as a buster. So. You're all listening to it in the car on the way home, aren't you? That's going to happen. I just made them a bunch of money. Uh, the, the problem with all of this is, of course, um, that that is not a fair reading of this text. Um, for any number of reasons... Um, whilst there are those in history who have held the kind of views that would be described, and yes, even amongst the Jewish rabbis you can find that kind of teaching in, in writings found in places like the Talmud, um, the simple fact is that that view no way resembles the actual teaching of the Bible, God's own words. Um, perhaps most obviously of all, because the Bible does absolutely condemn the sexual sins of both men and women in many places. Um, including the sins of the person who probably wrote this passage. Um, we may have read it earlier in the series, but 1 Kings 11 gives us a summary of the life of King Solomon, where it says, 
Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughters of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, and neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. This passage is not written to praise Solomon. It is a record of his failure to follow through on a promising beginning, and the thing which brought him to ruin was sexual sin. A man who started strong in the faith, but bad choices with women caused him and others significant harm. David, Solomon's dad, who is is praised here for being someone who did follow the Lord God with all his heart, is likewise guilty of committing grievous sexual sin himself, beginning with adultery. And this is not seen as a good thing in the Bible. It is his greatest flaw. God sends a prophet to confront him, and even after he repents, God decrees an extreme punishment on David and his family. I am not aware of a passage in the Bible that puts the blame for David's sin on Bathsheba and excuses him. Solomon was the next child of that adulterous relationship. And so what we see here in the lives of Solomon and David, uh, David is a, is a generational problem that plagued a family and through them brought ruin to the whole kingdom of Israel. In other words, uh, these wise words in Proverbs 7, and wise they are, inspired by God, are written by somebody who didn't take his own medicine. It was an urgent warning that Solomon himself should have listened to. God's word, written through human authors, is more perfect than the human instruments who wrote it. God's word is perfect, but Solomon is not. None of that makes the words of Proverbs 7 untrue or foolish. Uh, We can circle back to that hypocrisy later on. I suppose the next question that comes to our mind is, if that is the case... Why don't we just make it gender neutral and move on? Surely that disarms some of the the conflict that we walk into. Well, there's a reason why we don't do that. Several. Firstly, because the parental voice here is an important feature of the text. It's part of how God is communicating to us. Um, This passage is better and truer for being written in the voice of the Father. There There is something that it would lose if it was gender neutral. The reason why this passage is is kinder to the hypothetical son than it is to the woman is that it is being written from the point of view of a father who loves his son and is trying to stop him from coming to ruin. Don't you or I love our children in this way? We might speak to one of our children whom we love in warning them of danger, and we will express our love to them more so than our love for the strangers with whom they are considering making bad decisions. Yes, we are more gentle with those we love than with strangers. 
That's exactly what we are meant to be hearing in Proverbs 7. This is how God speaks to his children. Whilst our sin is utterly sinful, God does not treat us as our sin deserves, but rather he loves us. He disciplines us and he warns us and he calls us away from and into. Having this text speak to us in the voice of the Father makes it more closely reflect God's role as our Father with all of the warmth and affection present in these warnings that he truly feels for us as his children. Having him speak to his son is profound also. Because all of us who believe in Jesus as Savior have gained the status of sons and co-inheritors with Christ. It is an elevated position available to both men and women, but by speaking to the son, it carries that meaning. It's important then that we preserve it. With all that said, it's worth mentioning that the practical advice contained here quite obviously cuts both ways. Ladies, as we read along, feel free to to flip the advice in your head and have it as the father speaking to his daughter. It applies to you as well. And yet, let all of us keep in mind this is an example of God being kind to us in giving us a warning. Landmines avoided. Probably not. Next, the question is, so what is it that we learn here in Proverbs 7? The answer is that we learn sexual sin is both dangerous and enticing. That's the reality that we live in. Sexual sin has an appeal that draws people in. It's alluring. It's seductive, it's appealing. And those whom it catches and pulls in, it demolishes. What do we mean by sexual sin? There's another one that we need to unpack. Narrowly speaking here, this passage has described to us us the allure of adultery. This is a married woman propositioning other men. But the the concept of sexual sin in in your Bible is, is much broader than just that one simple example. If you are unfamiliar, our Bible is not anti-sex. turns out that sex was God's idea. He invented it. The story of Genesis does not go that God put Adam and Eve in the garden, that he turned around to make a cup of tea, and then he came back and was surprised by what he saw them doing. I should have seen that coming. No, sex is God's idea. He, He made it on purpose, but as the creator, he has a design for sex. There is a proper way to use it. There is an intended purpose and an intended pattern for sex in our lives. Sex has an intended purpose. We read about it in Genesis 1.28. It says, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. On the earth. Central to the purpose for sex is the being fruitful and multiplying mandate of Genesis 1, the creation of children, of family, of the flourishing of the human species. Sex has other purposes as well, Um, pleasure being one, the binding of two together being another, and in all of its purposes, sex is very effective. 
God's design has an intended purpose. It also has an intended pattern. We see that in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, which says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So here's the pattern. Step one, leave. Go from child status underneath the authority and and care of your father and your mother and, and leave to start a new family unit. Step two, hold fast, be joined to. In other words, marry the girl. <laughs> Step three, one flesh union. That is the pattern. One man, one woman. These days we need to be more specific. One human man, one human woman leave from their primary family unit to create a new one. They marry each other and become a new household, joined together till death do they part in exclusive commitment. And then in the context of marriage, sex can fulfill both its purpose and pattern, where everything about it is a blessing. God's plan here is both good and satisfying. It is, I believe, the single most romantic view of sex and of marriage which can exist. Two people reserving themselves for each other and committing to one another for life and in doing so, in the context of covenant, creating the fitting context for the bearing and the raising of children with safety and commitment enabling a kind of union which cannot exist in any other context. Uh, In in weddings here at this church, um, we have been using this description of marriage in our ceremonies, uh, which is adapted from the Anglican order of service, first written in the mid-1600s. I think it's a beautiful description of God's good plan. This is what it says. We begin our weddings by reading out these words, marriage is the sacred lifelong union of a man and a woman appointed by God. It is commended in his word as honorable to all who enter it sincerely and honestly. Jesus Christ spoke favorably of marriage and he personally attended a wedding in Cana of Galilee. God's word draws a likeness between marriage and the union that exists between Christ and his church. Marriage expresses the dignity and sacredness of the union between man and woman, giving themselves to each other in love and trust. It provides for God's gifts of companionship, affection, and intimacy to be enjoyed in a setting of purity, security, and honor. It is God's setting for the increase of mankind and for the family to be brought up to honor the Lord and be nurtured in God's ways. Marriage was given for the companionship, help, and comfort which husband and wife ought to have of each other, that they may enrich and encourage each other in every part of their life together. It was given for the good of human society, which can be strong and happy only when the marriage bond is held in honor. Isn't that beautiful? To put it simply, outside of this context, outside of this pattern and purpose, 
everything outside of this plan is not God's design for sex and is therefore sexual sin. It is so much easier to define what the pattern is than it is to list all the ways that it is possible to break the pattern. (laughs) Uh, The human race throughout our long history has been particularly creative in looking for loopholes in that design. It would seem that is true more so here than in any other part of God's plan for our lives. But here are some of the big obvious ones. Sexual sin is sex before marriage. Or living in a marriage-like relationship without marriage, e.g. cohabitation, living together unmarried. This includes inappropriate emotional entanglements between people who are not married, sharing too much of yourself in an intimate way, in a way that approaches the becoming of one flesh, even if it's not physical. This includes sex with somebody who is married to somebody else. Sex outside of your own marriage. The steadily growing problem of pornography, which is when people watch other people committing sexual sin for their own gratification. This includes both homosexuality and polygamy, prostitution, non-consensual conduct, and and a tricky one to define that could be a whole sermon because of the nuance involved, but the denying of the essential connection between marriage, sex, and children. Denying sex's procreative purpose is part of sexual sin. That list could go on basically forever. We have managed to find a loophole in every part of the pattern and purpose for sex. To take matters further, in the culture that we live, the predominant attitude towards sex is at no point biblical. Um, I remember preaching a sermon here a few years ago when Australia was going through the debates around same-sex marriage, and I remember saying that even if the new laws were not passed and the legislation were to remain as it was, Australians would not have a biblical sexual ethic. There is almost no one who lives their lives today according to the purpose and pattern for sex laid out in the Bible. In some ways, fitting into that pattern is more controversial than breaking it. That is the dominant attitude of our culture. The truth is that since the sexual revolution beginning in about the 1960s, another concept of the purpose and pattern of sex has been the dominant view, and it is birthing all of its ugly children every day. A view that says that the purpose of sex is nothing more than personal satisfaction, physical only gratification. And that the pattern is whatever I want it to be in order to achieve that gratification. The act of sex has been divorced from its ends. The boundaries have been destroyed. And now we are so bold-faced as to call sin a moral good. It is my freedom and my choice. And it is precisely into a context like that that God speaks his warning. You may believe that you are reaching for freedom or fulfillment from the well of sexual sin. It is genuinely enticing for any number of reasons, but hear the word of the Lord, you will not find freedom there. It will not deliver what it promises, but rather, Proverbs 7.22, all at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter, 
or as a stag is caught fast until an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare. He does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Our Father is pleading with us. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths, for many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Let us not be amongst them. As it says in Romans, claiming to be wise, we have become fools. And that foolishness is coming with all sorts of terrible consequences for us as a nation. We are rapidly approaching the day when more children will be born outside of marriage than inside of it. The Father's voice speaks to us. It calls out a warning, instructing us and wisdom. Don't listen to that siren call. Don't go wandering down that street. Don't loiter near that house. Do not play with this. Don't stroll past thinking that when she calls you, you will be able to resist. Don't go anywhere near her. Don't be there at that time of day. There is something better, something good, something wholesome, a satisfying purpose and pattern that you cannot have if you reach for that tree. God's plan will deliver fruitfulness rather than slavery and shame rather than um, and, and uh Freedom from shame rather than destruction. Now, I know what's happened as I've said these things today. Because the biblical view is so rare, because our culture is so uniquely obsessed, because wrong has been called right for so long, there is almost no one, even amongst you sitting before me, who has lived their life according to that picture. Even those of us who have, for the most part, lived in God's pattern, we know that in our hearts lurks the same flaws that make these sins desirable for everybody. There is not a one of us sitting here today who perfectly resembles that plan, and we have all made our own compromises. We have held up God's beautiful design. This morning. And in doing so, without needing to say anything else directly, any number of us have sat here feeling condemned. That's what's happened. Because that pattern and that purpose does not describe me. Which is why we must also say that wisdom alone is not enough. And God has not stopped at sharing with us his wisdom alone. The voice of the Father speaking to us this morning does not just tell us what is right. Does not just tell us how to avoid danger. He has gone so much further than that. The same Father who instructs us in love is the Father who restores the broken and who heals our shame so that your tomorrow does not need to look like your yesterday. 
our Father is the God of redemption who takes broken things and makes them whole. That means that today, God wants to meet you in your guilt and in your shame and bring restoration and healing into your life. We read about it all over the place, but perhaps in our favorite verse from the entire Bible from Romans 8. That same father says this to us. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. In other words, God has a gracious plan to take people who do not fit into his perfect pattern and to rescue us and to forgive us and to heal us and to make us new and set us free, to give us the good thing that we surrendered in our foolishness. Wisdom on its own will not make you fit that pattern. It doesn't matter that it's true. It's not enough. But Jesus has come to rescue the lost. He's come in the flesh. He himself has done what is right. He is without sin. And our substitute died and has dealt with the punishment which our sins deserve. He is risen again to new life and is now able to deliver to the uttermost. All who come to him, he is our purity. He is our transformation. He freely gives his spirit to all who ask him. And that spirit sets us free from the law of death, which has been at work in our bodies. And so we can say there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. That is the purpose of what God is saying to us today. In speaking directly into the problem of sexual sin, God is speaking to us in order to call us into grace. A grace which heals and restores and blesses. There are three calls he has made to us here today as a result. The first, come and receive forgiveness and restoration from the hands of Jesus. Each and every one of us, we all need to come to him and to receive his grace. And he desires to share it with you. He has gone to great lengths to communicate that to us. He gives it freely to all who ask. And so if you ask him today, it doesn't matter what your past looks like, you leave here clean. Come and receive forgiveness and restoration.
Secondly, those of us who are married should treasure our marriages. Let's not take their health for granted, but rather maintain them. Running towards and maintaining God's good plan for us over the long haul. Faithfulness is precious. Date night is holy. Love your spouse. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, love your husbands. And keep yourselves for them only. Lastly, flee from sin. Flee from sin. Perhaps this is the loudest part of Proverbs 7. Don't linger near her tempting fate. You will not win. Perhaps the best example we have of this comes from the son of Jacob named Joseph. (laughs) Being preyed upon by Potiphar's wife, aggressively tearing the clothes off his body, who flees naked into the street using the two legs that God give him. Sometimes fleeing from sin is literal. Do not place yourself in situations and in relationships that cause you to come into danger from sexual sin. It is a snare and all of a sudden, snap. Why do we do these things? We do these things because our God is a good God. Because his plan for us is lovely and filling and pleasant. Because we lose when we compromise, not win. And because his love and grace are for us and new every day. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you this morning for the wisdom of your plan and of your warning. Your truth is true and wise beyond imagining. Your version of life and what it is meant to be is better than the imaginings of our heart. You know what life is for. You know how it should work. And none of us know better than you. Father, we thank you for your wisdom. And this morning, Father, we also thank you for your love. The simple fact is that a day like today is a reminder of how far most of us have strayed from your plan for life. How lightly we treat your holy things. How much disregard we have for your holiness. How casually we tear down walls that you have put in place for our protection and our blessing. Father, if I was you, I would have run out of patience years ago. But we thank you that you are you. And that you have gone to the greatest of extents to send your son in our likeness and to make from amongst your opponents a people of your very own. We thank you for the gracious cleansing which comes through Jesus the mercies which are new every day. We thank you that as far as the east is from the west, you have removed our sins from us who worship you. That I can be new today 
by grace and grace alone. Lord, we thank you for your holiness, your transforming power that causes us to become like you. Our prayer is that today would be a sanctifying day, a day which further brings us into alignment with the picture of who Jesus is, the image being formed in us. Would this be a church, we pray, God? Healthy families, loving marriages, holy singleness, content and delighted to belong to you. Would we know the joy and the blessing and the security and the certainty that your wise covenant creates and be free of the pain and the destruction which comes from ignoring your pattern and your plan. These things we pray in the name of Jesus who has loved us in this way, who has given himself for us and to us, who is perfectly devoted to his bride, the church, who is washing her with the water of the word in order to present her holy and blameless on that day, who is the perfect husband. We pray this in Jesus' name.